0: Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the final episode in a six-part mini-series called The Physics of Everything, in which we are presenting long-form conversations from a series of events at the Academy sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation, explorations that reflect on the current state of modern physical sciences its greatest mysteries and future endeavors, and philosophical significance for our understanding of reality and the spiritual dimension of human existence. And for today's episode, we're going to go a little further down the wormhole than we have in the rest of this series. And I mean that both metaphorically and literally. It's a conversation that goes much deeper into hard science than the previous ones have. So I'm going to have to give it a little bit of a longer introduction to help prepare you for what you're going to listen to. This discussion is largely about an unexpected convergence of really complex questions that are currently being worked on by scientists in what seem like two very different fields. The first field is, of course, physics. And for years, the most famously intractable problem in physics has been the quest for what's sometimes called a theory of everything, a set of master key equations that will describe every interaction in the universe. Now, that might seem ridiculously ambitious, but we're actually closer to it than you might realize, largely thanks to two tremendously important theories. Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity, the cornerstone of what we call astrophysics, and quantum mechanics, which was developed from a concept of Einstein's by people like Max Planck, Niels Bohr, and Werner Heisenberg, and is the basis of what we refer to as particle physics. Both of these theories are extremely complex and subtle, and backed up by fiendishly difficult math. But to make a long story extremely short, General Relativity explains that gravity isn't a force like electromagnetism is, but rather a curvature of spacetime caused by an object's mass. Really big, massive things cause more warping of spacetime than smaller, less massive things do. Quantum mechanics describes the motion and interaction of the smallest things we know about subatomic particles like protons, electrons, and photons in terms of probability, the odds that a certain particle will appear in a certain place at a certain time. Now, the thing is that both of these theories work extremely well as well as just about any scientific theories ever devised but only if you apply them at different scales. Relativity is extremely good at predicting the motion of big things like spaceships and moons and galaxies. And quantum mechanics is extremely good at describing the behavior of really small things like electrons. But here's the thing. On a mathematical level, they're incompatible. They both can't be true, but yet somehow both are. Clearly, we're missing something really important. And this is, to say the least, a frustrating state of affairs, and has been for around a hundred years. Some of the latest and most promising efforts to reconcile these systems have to do with black holes, the most massive things in the universe. So massive that their enormous gravity sucks in everything, including light, and doesn't release it. And that's why we can't see them, hence black holes. It's in the vicinity of a black hole that quantum mechanics and general relativity clash most spectacularly. Because at the edge of them, or if you want to use the lingo, the event horizon, there are all kinds of weird phenomena that are both extremely tiny and extremely massive. So we're not going to be able to understand them properly until we can square the circle and come up with a new theory that explains both quanta and gravity the theory of everything that's eluded physicists for so long. Now here's the strange part. These weird phenomena at the edge of black holes have become interesting to a group of scientists and engineers who, at first blush, would seem as distant as you could get from particle physics. The researchers who design new kinds of computer hardware, a pursuit as concrete and practical as all this next-level physics is theoretical and abstract. You see, classical computers operate by manipulating information using a cascading series of bits, or, roughly, on-off switches. This was first done mechanically, and then digitally by means of a series of ones and zeros, known as binary code. In a newer field, called quantum information theory, the idea is to code information in the states of quantum systems. The smallest of these systems is called a qubit, q u b i t, which might describe, for example, the polarization of a photon. And unlike a classical bit, a qubit can exist not only in one and zero states, but also in a mixture or superposition of these states. This gives a third option to each switch, not just on or off, but also on-off. And this radically expands the possibilities of information that can be encoded in such a system and changes the rules of the game for how information could be stored and operated. So, what does all that have to do with black holes? Well, in the 70s, Stephen Hawking introduced the notion of radiation that comes from a black hole, actually escapes from it. This is now called Hawking Radiation. And it's based on quantum effects near the lip of the event horizon. This radiation, which leads to black hole evaporation and eventually disappearance, has uncovered effects that occur in a black hole that do not have a description within existing theories. Over the decades since, the central question of this paradox has revealed itself to be, what happens to quantum information when a black hole evaporates? All of a sudden, To solve some of the most fundamental problems underlying basic interactions in nature, we need to turn to a theory developed for quantum computing. And vice versa. Black holes might be the key to creating this new generation of computers. How does all this work? Honestly, I haven't the foggiest idea. But luckily, we have a panel made up of three people who do. And I hope you enjoy listening to them discuss it. This event was held at the Academy on June 29th of this year and entitled, Did Einstein Kill Schrodinger's Cat? A Quantum State of Mind. The panelists were Dr. Daniel Harlow of the Harvard University Center for the Fundamental Laws of Nature, Dr. Scott Aronson of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Dr. Brian Swingle of the Stanford Institute for Theoretical Physics. Our excellent moderator for the third time in this series was George Musser, A contributing editor of Scientific American magazine and author of the books Spooky Action at a Distance and The Complete
1: Idiot's Guide to String Theory. I'll let him take it from here. Thanks to all of you for coming out tonight for what will be a pretty fun and hardcore discussion about physics. So get ready. I think we're going to have a lot of uh, fun here. We're going to specifically go beyond the interpretational saga that you often hear about, the Einstein-Bohr. We're going to zoom past 1927, zoom past 1935, and a light on the year, what, 2012, really, is when this whole field got going. One of the most interesting recent developments, really, I think, in foundational physics. And that these three gentlemen are really the, the pioneers of. Specifically, what they're doing is they're merging two previously disparate areas of basic physics. On the one side, quantum information which includes a lot of those mysteries about quantum entanglement but also seeks to build quantum computers, quantum code uh, networks and things like that. On the other side, quantum gravity, the effort to bring some unity to physics to explain black holes, the nature of space and time, holographic principle, ideas such as that. And normally you would put those two fields, although they both have the word quantum in them, you would normally put them into two separate boxes. The quantum information people are kicking over things in laboratories and trying to do tangible experiments with particles and atoms and ions and and so forth, and the quantum gravity people are out thinking about the nature of the universe and uh, things probably that can never be observed by by human instruments, and yet today we're seeing remarkable interconnections uh, between those two areas. So I'll introduce our panelists extremely briefly, too briefly, I won't go into all their many awards and academies of science and so forth. They sit on, I want to get straight into the science. So Brian Swingle is a postdoc at Stanford. Daniel Harlow is a postdoc at Harvard. And Scott Aronson at the far side is a professor at MIT, soon to be professor at UT Austin, about to move down to to Texas. And he will tell you a little about his project toward the end of our, our, our discussion. So I'm breaking the discussion down tonight into three sections broadly. One will be on dualities that come out of string theory, but have a more general applicability, uh, such as the ADS-CFT, which we'll define in just a moment. Second, we're gonna get into, well, we're not gonna get into one because that would be bad for your health. We're gonna talk about black holes. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, if we have time, and I hope we do, if we don't, please bring this up in Q&A. We're gonna talk about some practical applications, things that can actually do with these, these ideas for understanding quantum computers, for example, or cosmology, or, or other kinds of systems. So Daniel, let me start with you, and if we can actually have the first set of slides, because I think you'll be, you'll be getting into those.
2: Yep.
1: Uh, if you could give us Duality 101, tell us a bit about ADS-CFT, and then launch us into the discussion that we'll, we'll, we'll then have.
2: Yeah, sure, so uh, so uh, th- you know, it's great to be here, obviously. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, so, you know, quantum gravity is an old subject. Uh, you know, we've known about quantum and we've known about gravity for eighty years, hundred years now. So some, some, aspects. Um, uh, but you know, so you might think, well, it's an old subject and we're still talking about it. So you know, it must be difficult, right? We haven't solved it already. Uh, so, so why, you know, why are we still thinking about it if it's so hard, right? But one of the really exciting things. Um, about this subject in the last 20 years is that we've really found examples of quantum gravity where, which we actually understand. You know, Examples with equations. You know, Equations that have left-hand sides which are equal to right-hand sides. And we know what everything in the equations uh, mean. Uh, so, and the, the sort of canonical example of that uh, is this anti-de Sitter space uh, conformal field theory correspondence? Now, now the words. Don't worry too much about what the words mean. I'll tell you uh, enough uh, about it. Hopefully, in the next few minutes, that you'll you'll know what you need to know. Um, so, so, so let's start with anti-de Sitter space. So, so the first disclaimer about anti-de Sitter space is that we don't live and anti Sitter space so this is a theory of quantum gravity it's a theory of somebody's quantum gravity but it's not our quantum gravity right so you you may have heard uh, that the in our universe there's a cosmological constant uh, which is positive uh, which means that at the largest scales uh, the expansion of the universe is accelerating right there's a positive energy density of filling space and so 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 things that are far away from us are getting further away at a rate which is accelerating. You know, Eventually they'll be so far away we won't even be able to see them anymore. So anti-de Sitter space is kind of the opposite of that. So in anti-de Sitter space, the cosmological constant is negative instead of positive. And we'll just view it as an inconvenience that that's not true in our universe. Uh, I w- the reason why we'll study anyway is because it turns out that it's much easier to study. You know, you know, we, for, for when it's positive, we don't yet have this thing where we have equations, where we know the left-hand side and we know the right-hand side, right? Whereas, whereas, whereas for, for ADS, we do.
0: Now, from here on, a lot of what Dr. Harlow is describing is referring to a set of slides that he's showing. So, I'll do my best to describe them so we can all follow along. The first is of a painting by M.C. Escher called Circle Limit 3, which depicts a tight pattern of fish and white lines inside a circle. The lines form shapes that look like smushed triangles and squares with concave sides, as if you had left a box out in the rain and its walls all started to droop inward.
2: So, so, so here, here's what a time slice of ADS looks like, right? So, so, so it's an old idea. Escher knew about it, right? This picture is uh, due to Escher. Uh, so, so you see, it's a space of constant negative curvature, right? So, so the the, the white lines in between the fish are like straight lines, uh, and they're actually and, and they're actually parallel, right? So, like like if you see that sort of square in the center, if you look at the lines on opposite sides of the square. Those are actually parallel, but you see they're sort of diverging away from each other as you, as, as you go along, right? So whereas, you know, in, in ordinary geometry, parallel lines stay parallel. So, so here they don't, and that's because the curvature is negative, you know, which has to do with this, this cosmological constant being negative. Um, so, so that's what the sort of space at, at fixed time looks like. Now, you know, uh, when we're doing gravity, we usually like to also include time in the picture. So here, here's including time in the picture. So now it's, this is anti Sitter space time.
0: And now we see Escher's circular picture in the middle of a vertical cylinder with a stick figure man jumping up from it towards the top of the tube as if the picture were a trampoline. Uh,
2: so you see we've got that, you know, the, the fish at <laughs> t equals zero there, and then time is, time is, I've done time going up in the picture. And then, well, since, since you know, it's kind of the opposite of an expanding universe, um, what happens is, okay, so there's us in the center on the right there. I hope you can see there's a little guy sitting there in the center and then moving up in time, right? So So moving up in time, right, we're also doing it in this room, right? So even if we sit still and we're not moving <laughs> in space, we're always moving in time. So so that's what this guy in the center is doing with the black dashed line moving up in time. But then the funny thing about being an anti-de-sitter space is if he, if he throws a baseball or shoots a laser pointer, um, so he shoots a laser pointer, and then the thing is, well, because the cosmological constant is negative, so right, had it been positive, the laser just, it would've gone away, you never would've seen it again. But, but because we're in anti-de-sitter space, what happens is actually after a while, the laser pointer turns around and comes back. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then you shoot yourself in the eye uh, after a little while. Uh, So I guess if this were our cosmological constant, we flip the sign that a while would be 13 billion years, so it would take it a while for it to come back, but eventually it would. Um, So, you know, we're all boomerangs in anti-de-sitter space, right? You know, you throw the baseball away, and after a while it comes back. Um, So that's life in anti-de-sitter space.
0: Now we see two cylinders. The one on the left is as before. We can see inside to where Escher's painting is in the center. This cylinder has an equation written on it. G does not equal zero. On the cylinder on the right, the outside has become opaque, so all we see is gray representing the outside wall. It carries the equation G equals zero. The two cylinders are connected by a double arrow.
2: Okay, now, uh, well, the n- so I said we know about quantum gravity in anti Sitter space, right? How do we know about it? Well, the idea is that, so you see this, so anti Sitter space, right, it's kind of like the soup in a can. Right, so you imagine a can of soup, right? So then you know we've got this boundary here, the edge of the disc, which is where the stuff sort of bounces off and comes back. Um, and so then the amazing thing, which is uh, th- this great discovery of the last twenty years, is that gravity inside this, the soup of quantum gravity is actually equal to a theory which just lives on the on the metal part of the can, uh, and and. Yeah, but it's a theory without gravity, right? So here, this G is Newton's constant, uh, the coupling of gravity, right? And so here, G is not zero. So we're doing quantum gravity in anti-de Sitter space. But then it's actually we've we've discovered it's the same thing as non-quantum, or sorry, non-quantum non-gravity uh, on the boundary of the space, right? You know, with G Newton equals zero. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I just drew this little arrow here, but, you know, to emphasize, they're actually equations, right, and so we know stuff here, we know how to describe here, and stuff here, we, we know how to describe there uh, in a fairly precise way. Um, so, but you yeah. notice it's a little bit funny, right? Because here, for example, you know, say this could, in our world, this could be three plus one dimensions, right, three space dimensions in one time, but then the boundary would be two plus one dimensional. So it's kind of funny, right? It's saying our three plus one dimensional world is really described, you know in in the act you know in the fundamental variables as a two plus one dimensional theory, right? which is kind of crazy. You know how can that be? well well here, here here's how it can be.
0: Now we see two circles, each surrounded by fifteen equally spaced dots, as if there was a clock face with the wrong number of numbers on it. In the circle on the left, there's a convex arc that connects a point just after where nine o'clock would be on a regular clock face to around where 11 o'clock would be. Inside this tiny sort of half-circle shape is colored blue, and there's a stick figure person trapped in there also. On the right, the line is pointed in the other direction, and the larger area is blue, making a sort of chubby crescent shape. This blue area's stick figure has a lot more room to move around, and he's now in the center of the circle.
2: So, you see, um... So here right now I've just drawn from above. So this is like the fish again, but I remove the fish. I guess I, I reach the limit of my graphical ability. Um, so so the bound. So each of these dots here, right? That's like a, that's like one of the degrees of freedom that make up this this boundary theory, right? So it's living on the shaded thing, right? So like you know that's this this collection of dots here is like the set of degrees of freedom in that boundary theory, and then well the way that so then there's this extra dimension moving into the center, which is sort of not explicitly there in the boundary theory. Um, but, but the way it works is that, well, if you, if you only use a few of the dots, like say these two, then, then you can only describe things that are near the boundary, like this person here. Um, but if you use more of the dots, like you know, say all of these, then you can describe a person who's further in uh, towards the center. So, so, so it, there's sort of a relationship between the size of the description on the boundary and how far into the, into the space-time you go. And so that, that's where the extra dimension comes from. It comes from sort of how big are the things uh, that you use here. Um, so let me just finish briefly by, by saying how, the, how this is related to, to ideas in quantum information theory. Right? So, so far, this was sort of the quantum gravity si- si- side of things. But you see, but, but in fact, um, well, I, I can rephrase what happened here differently. Um, uh, so, so, say you're playing tag, uh, and, uh, and, and this is you here, so you're inside, and, and here's me out there, I'm trying to tag you. Uh, but uh, I am, you know, a person of finite means, so, so I can only act on a, on a few of these sites on the boundary at a time. So now if you want to hide from me, well, you're not going to hide near the boundary because then I can tag you just by, by getting to get a few of the sites. But you know if you're smart, what you'll do is you'll go into the middle, and now if I want to tag you, I have to do something rather complicated. I have to kind of do something that involves all of these uh, uh, degrees of freedom at once, so, so you can hide in the center. Uh, and, well, I mean, that's interesting for a variety of reasons, but one reason why that's interesting is because, well, in quantum comput- when you make a quantum computer, you have the same problem, right? So, uh, but now you should think of each of these dots as being like, you know, a bit or really a qubit in the memory of your quantum computer. And you know, when you build a quantum computer, right, the problem is that you need to preserve the memory, right? Like, so say you're doing a computation, you're factoring a number or something. You don't want suddenly one of your bits gets flipped from a zero to a one, right, without your knowing, right? Because say you know a thermal photon scattered off the memory or something. So, so the so the way we protect our computation, the way, we, you know, the way we protect our quantum memory, is that we can stick it in the middle of anti-de-Sitter space, uh, right? And in fact, uh, anti-de-Sitter space all by itself, unbeknownst to us before, is already doing, it, it's already giving you a sort of way of protecting quantum information, uh, uh, you know, in a way that people hadn't really thought about before. Uh. Yeah, and, and, and the mathematics are actually the same, right? I mean, the mathematics people develop to describe how to protect your quantum computation, we've, we've realized is the same mathematics as, as this ADS-CFT correspondence, this duality is using to, to protect you in the center from, 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 getting, uh, from getting tagged uh, by me.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> no, that that was, that was really well done. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Scott, can you tell me, we'll, we'll get into your slides in just a moment, but just okay. comment on some of these, the, the basic principle of using an idea such as quantum error correction for understanding quantum gravity and is that is that a surprising connection or yes <laughs> that was easy we can call it a night Next question.
3: Of, course, of course it is. okay so uh, all right. so uh, so yeah so so look, there are a lot of surprising connections in this area that, that sort of uh, uh, you know I guess drew all of us in. so so I should say you know again, it, it's great to be here and it's a little bit uh, I feel a little bit sheepish sort of sharing this stage because I'm not a uh, physicist at all, uh, let alone a quantum gravity theorist. I'm a uh, computer scientist scientist i'm sort of yes <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of a uh, i'm sort of like a a mercenary right uh, like uh when um uh, uh you know my, my friends in physics will you know come sometimes and say, well you know it would really help uh, to protect the geometry of space and time if such and such a computational problem were hard and I say uh, so then tell me the problem <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, s- sort of how how I get involved my my main interest is uh, quantum computation um, to, uh, uh, what you could uh, you know I don't I don't have a lab I'm, I'm barely even allowed into a lab uh, but I, uh, uh, I, I'm a theorist I study what you could do if you had a quantum computer and what you could still not do even then what are sort of the fundamental limits on computation so I, I like to call my field the study of, of what we uh, still couldn't do with computers that we don't yet have um, <laughs> but uh, so, um, uh, so 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 uh, you know b- 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 black holes were sort of you know never something that I expected that uh, I would be thinking about or working on but you uh, um, Actually, you know, partly because of the work of these two pe- people and, and a bunch of others in the in the community, uh, uh, I've sort of uh, had no choice but to become interested. So, uh, so I want to tell you a little bit about you know uh, how the theory of quantum computing has uh, uh, entered into the the study of of uh, black holes, the black hole information problem. Uh, Daniel already gave you one example, which is uh, through uh, you know the appearance of uh, uh, quantum error correcting codes. In the AdS/CFT correspondence, um, I'm going to tell you about uh, another connection uh, between um, computational complexity, which is really you know the thing closest to my heart, and um, and and black holes. This is ironically a piece of uh, Daniel's work that I'll be telling you about, uh, and. Um, You know, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, I guess uh, some, you know, minor uh, involvement that I had. And I learned it all from him. Oh, well. (laughs) All right. But uh, but then, uh, uh, and and then we're going to come back and we're going to also later talk about the role of uh, complexity in the ADS-CFT correspondence. So okay, so uh, we all, you know, more or less know what a black hole is. It's, you know, like, uh, you know, Las Vegas, you know, whatever happens there stays there right and uh, uh, but or so people thought right a uh, you know huge uh, discovery in the 1970s was when um, Hawking did this calculation that says you know uh, black holes are not completely black in the sense that an observer who is standing you know uh, outside of a black hole will see some you know radiation very 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 slowly coming out and um, you know, this is one of the few things uh, you know in the intersection of quantum mechanics and uh, and gravity that sort of everyone has agreed about. You know that this is a you know a physical phenomenon in our universe uh, because the uh, the prediction that this Hawking radiation should exist uh, you know used only like well understood physics of you know quantum field theory uh, and you know what's called a semi classical uh, regime. So uh, so the prediction is that. Uh, if you, you know, is that actually a black hole would completely evaporate away into nothing. You know, for a black hole, the mass of our sun, you would merely have to wait uh, 10 to the 67 years or so. And and, then it would be gone. Okay, that's the, that is the prediction. Uh, And, um, you know, that's, that's just, you know, uh, considered you know one of the most solid things in the subject, and uh, so okay. But but it but it but it but it but it led to a problem. Uh, the, the problem uh, arose because the same calculation that Hawking did that told you that this uh, radiation should come out of a black hole at all also told you that this radiation should be completely thermal. Okay, which means it should be like completely random noise. You know, uncorrelated with whatever information. Uh, uh, was in the infalling matter that, that formed the black hole in the first place. Okay, And this was a serious problem because uh, since, you know, the laws of physics that we've known ever since Galileo and Newton really have had the property of reversibility. Okay, you can run them backwards just as well as forwards, right? Which means, you know, in principle, you know, you could unscramble an egg, you know, you could uh, recover, you know, you could, you know, you could not just burn a book, but you could recover the book from the smoke and the ash, you know, uh, and so forth. You know, we don't often see that happen, but but that's that's merely for statistical thermodynamics reasons. That's not for any reason of fundamental physics, right? And so that's, that's... that's a very important principle, the reversibility of all the microscopic laws of nature. And here black holes seem to be the one exception to that, because you throw, let's say, an encyclopedia into a black hole, right, and what comes out is just this completely thermal state from which you can can no longer recover the words in the encyclopedia, even, you know, assuming, like, infinitely advanced technology of the future. Okay, and in particular, this would conflict with quantum mechanics, which insists on such reversibility. Um, uh, so, so, you know, a lot of the uh, research in fundamental physics over the last forty years was, was in some way, motivated by this problem, uh, uh, trying to uh, deal with it somehow. And uh, so, um, you know, so, so people sort of uh, evolved toward the view that uh, uh, actually the information should come out of a black hole, right? So you might know that that Hawking had a bet about this uh, with uh, Kip Thorne and John Preskill, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Uh, Hawking bet that the information does not come out and then 10 years ago he conceded that bet. I don't actually fully understand why he conceded but in any case he's he's, he's on board as well that the information should come out Uh, and if you know his field theory calculation says it doesn't come out well then you know the the sort of modern point of view is that that's just telling you the limitations of you know semi-classical field theory right you know a true quantum theory of gravity ought to be Able to, you know, you ought to be able to use it to trace the information all the way from when it falls in to when it to when it uh, eventually comes out, and um, so this is considered, you know, a crucial test case for, you know, if you think you understand quantum gravity, well, then explain how it is that the information comes out. Okay, and this led to a whole sequence of problems and paradoxes, uh, and uh, you know, a, a major one was that, you know, the. Um, If you dropped a quantum bit, a qubit, into a black hole, then, well, you know, uh, you could say, you know, uh, if you stand outside the black hole, then, you know, you have to see it come out eventually. But someone who who is inside the black hole would never see it come out. Right, Because, uh, you know, that, that's what a black hole is like. And, uh, and so then you would seem to have two copies of that qubit in the same universe. But that actually violates a basic princi- another basic principle of quantum mechanics, which is called the no-cloning theorem, okay, which says you cannot, there is no way to make a copy of, of a qubit in, in general. Um, you know, qubits are very, you know, are, are, are much harder to pirate than, you know, than software or music <laughs> CDs, right? You can't just, you know, freely make copies of them. You know, you can try to make a measurement, but then that will collapse uh, the thing. So, uh, so, so people were eventually led to a view called black hole complementarity, uh, which emerged in the 90s, by right? uh, Susskind and Hooft and others. And uh, what this basically said is that the, you know, jumping into a black hole is, actu- is actually just a really, really convoluted way of measuring the same degrees of freedom that you know you could also have measured staying outside of the black hole so it 's not that there 's two copies of the information it 's just the same information measured in two different ways now I never really understood that uh, <laughs> now what what happened now what happened four years ago was that uh, uh, um, the um, uh, community uh, uh, discovered something called the firewall paradox which was basically them acknowledging that they didn't understand it either <laughs> and uh, so let me uh, tell you a little bit about this <laughs> firewall paradox which may have you know it was in the New York Times it was you know it was in the news and you know it sort of I guess lit this quantum gravity community on fire so to speak but uh, the you know the basic idea so 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 it's so it's 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 kind it's kind of technical to explain exactly what leads to the problem, but the the basic idea actually is, is, is fairly easy to state, right? It's that, you know, if you really took seriously the idea that, you know, the interior of the black hole is built out of the same degrees of freedom that are also on the event horizon and outside of the black hole. In other words, if you took seriously this idea of black hole complementarity, which was invented to, you know, uh, uh, get around this no cloning problem. Uh, well, then, you know, if they're really the same information, then there ought to be something that you could do, let's say, to the information that is outside of the black hole, uh, um, which would affect what what someone would see who is inside the black hole. Okay, so there ought to be some transformation allowed by the rules of quantum mechanics that an observer could do to the Hawking radiation such that if they then jumped into the black hole later, they would see that they had just completely messed up the black hole interior, okay? And by messed up, I mean completely Destroyed the geometry of space and time in the interior of the black hole. Okay, which is a, a very strong sense of messing something up. And um, so uh, so so the the so the actual you know thought experiment that that they proposed you know involves an observer called uh, uh, Alice. It's always Alice, and if there's a second one, then he's Bob, right? But uh, but here we here we only have Alice, and what she does is so she we assume she knows the complete state of the infall matter that forms a black hole she knows all the relevant laws of physics uh, you know and the black hole is perfectly isolated from everything else in the universe all right you know we're just getting started with the uh, with the thought experiment assumptions here okay so then you know she lets the thing collapse to form a black hole Uh, then she waits for the black hole to mostly but not completely evaporate into Hawking radiation that you know as I said takes 10 to the 67 years or so we assume Alice has a really long grant, you know much <laughs> lo- much longer than mine uh, and um and then you know Alice uh, collects all of this Hawking radiation with some sort of array of perfect photodetectors, routes it all into her quantum computer, like a network of uh, logic gates acting on a collection of quantum bits or qubits. Uh, so she processes the uh, qubits that have come out of the black hole in some specified way, you know, and she is looking for. Uh, evidence that, that 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 this hawking radiation is not in a completely thermal state she's looking for proof that it really did encode the infalling information okay um, and, uh, um, and, and so to be a little bit more uh, clear about it, right? we can think of like three regions. There's the interior of uh, this black hole, which again is mostly evaporated already. We call that H. There is the Hawking radiation that Alice has collected and rooted into her quantum computer. We call that R. And then uh, there's a third region which we'll call B, which is just let's say one, we could even say just one qubit of Hawking radiation, which is just now emerging from the black hole, okay? And what, you know, the the rules of quantum mechanics tell you that if you believe that everything is reversible and the information comes out, then eventually, after enough of this black hole has evaporated, there must be what's called quantum entanglement between R and B. Okay, so, so not only, you know, the Hawking radiation cannot be in a completely thermal state, but there must be correlations between the different parts of the Hawking radiation. And once enough of the qubits have come out, uh, for technical reasons, it turns out uh, at least half of the qubits have come out, once that happens, Alice could in principle do a measurement that would detect that those correlations are present. So she could actually see that there is um, almost maximal intensity between R and B. Okay, now the next. This is all just the pre- the preparation. Okay, <laughs> the next step is that Alice jumps into the black hole. Okay, she will do a lot for the sake of science. Okay, and so by the way, she won't. You know, the the final result of this experiment, she won't be able to tell anyone else. You know, unless that other person jumped into the black hole with her. Okay, but uh, but you know, but we would still like to know what she's going to see. You know, so um, so now Alice is going to jump in and uh, now for reasons, you know, I won't have time to go into involving quantum field theory, uh, there also if Alice sees a smooth space time as she crosses the event horizon, which is what general relativity says she's going to see, then there has to be almost maximal entanglement between the quantum fields represented by B and the quantum fields of H that are just inside the event horizon. Okay, so now the same same qubit of B, Alice has to see it maximally entangled both with R and with H. But now this violates yet another principle of quantum mechanics. Okay, a pr- the principle that the same qubit cannot be entangled with two other qubits. This principle has a wonderful name. It is called the monogamy of entanglement. Okay? Uh, that, that is the technical name for it. Okay? Um, and... Um, so the same qubit just—it just doesn't make sense for it to be entangled with two other qubits, and so what, you know. So then you find, so you get to the—you can reach the conclusion that if Alice saw R and B entangled, then she cannot see B and H entangled. But if B and H are not entangled, then as she crosses the event horizon, she cannot see a smooth. Smooth space-time. In fact, she is going to uh, burn up immediately at encounter an end of space and time at the event horizon, which I have illustrated. Like that. that is that is what's called the firewall. Okay, and you know, so so you know, just to be clear, like we knew that Alice was going to encounter an end of space-time. This is a black hole, right? But she was supposed to only hit hit it at the singularity, right? Now we're saying that she already hits it at the event horizon, okay? Mm -hmm. That is the crazy part here, okay? So then, you know, the problem, the question is, what gives? And, like, what are you going to give up in order to, um, You know, you know, if if you if you think this is crazy, we have to drop at least one of the assumptions that led into this thought experiment. So there have been lots and lots of you know ideas. Everyone in the community seems to agree that this is not a problem, but they but they completely disagree about why it's not a problem. But now now one you know sort of answer to this that I found you know uh, uh, astonishing striking came three years ago by a fellow named Daniel Harlow and Patrick. And there's a picture of Harwell up there. If you don't, you know, want to look over here. Uh, so, um, so what they argued was that, uh, uh, you know, well, they said yes. The rules of quantum mechanics formally allow you to do this experiment, you know, to to, to do this measurement on R and uh, B that would you know that would unveil the uh, entanglement between them. But how hard would it actually be to do that quantum computation, you know, that uh, that we talked about, right? How many steps? would Alice need to do? And they gave actually very strong evidence that to do that uh, would take a number of steps that grows exponentially in the number of qubits of the black hole, which means not a mere 10 to the 67 years, but in this case, more like 2 to the 10 to the 67 years, (laughs) okay? Which means that, you know, way before Alice had even made a dent in this computational problem, the black hole would have long ago evaporated anyway, okay? And there'd be nothing to jump into anymore, so then maybe there's no problem. Maybe we can all go home happy, you know? But, um... All right, you know, now when it came to the crucial point of why is this problem actually hard? Why does it involve, you know, exponential time, right? There was so much in their p- paper, you know, in their amazing paper about this that I just barely understood. But then when they came to the point of why is the problem hard, then suddenly I recognized that they were using my PhD thesis. So, um, so you know, so because, you know, that's, that's sort of my subject. What is hard even for a quantum computer? And, uh, you know, in particular I proved something in 2002, which said that uh, if if you've got like a long list of numbers, let's say from one to n, and you know, let's say each number appears in the list many times. And now all you want is to find a collision, meaning you want to find some, uh, you know, a number, you know, you want to find two places in the list where the same number appears. Okay. This is a very important problem for cryptography, for example, if I mean, any of you have heard of uh, collision-resistant hash functions, one of the basic building blocks of modern cryptography, if you had a fast quantum algorithm for this kind of thing, you could break all hash functions with a quantum computer, which means if you want any form of cryptography, you know, which is sort of going to be secure in a world with quantum computers, you know, this is one of the most, you know, at the very least, you would hope that this problem would 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 have hard cases even for a quantum computer, so that was an, an open problem for a while. And so that's so I was able to show that any quantum algorithm to do that for a, let's say a generic, a completely generic list of numbers would need at least about n to the one fifth power steps. Okay, before that it was only known that it would need at least one step. Okay, <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, and that was since improved to you know n to the one third steps, uh, which which turns out to be the right answer. Okay, for a classical computer, the answer is about square root of n steps. Uh, the re, you know for the same reason why if there's like 23 people in a room, there's a very good chance that two of them have the same birthday. Right? right. What matters is not the number of people; it's the number of pairs of people. Right? The, so it goes like the square root. of How many days there are in a year? Anyway, uh, so so that what, what what Harlow and Hayden showed basically was that if you had a fast quantum algorithm to decode the entanglement between the R and B regions. In other words, you know to set up this firewall and it worked generically, then that would also give you a fast quantum algorithm for finding collisions. Yes. Right, and at least in the generic case, I had shown that that's impossible. In the case that's relevant to them, it's at least plausible that it's impossible. Um, you know, this is the kind of argument we can make in theoretical computer science most of the time. You know, often, you know, we can't in sort of the real world as opposed to this sort of black box world. You know, we don't know how to prove things are impossible. If you've heard of the P versus NP question, that's you know an example of that. But you know, what we can do is we can pass the blame to someone else okay we can say look you know you know, I can't prove my problem is hard but if you could solve it then you could solve a thousand other problems that people have been trying to solve since the 70s so it's not my fault for failing to solve it okay so then um, you know so then recently I was able to improve Harlow and Hayden's uh, argument so that it no longer relies on my PhD thesis uh, and now you know I can base their argument on just the assumption that there is any one way function, which means a function that is easy to compute, but hard to invert. Okay. And that's the sort of like the bare bones minimum for any kind of cryptography based on computational hardness. And so all I need is a one way function. I need it to be hard to invert even using a quantum computer. And I need it to be injective, which means that every two inputs map to different outputs. Okay, and as long as you have that, I can create a quantum state of these R, B, and H regions, which has the property that you know, there is entanglement formally by the rules of quantum mechanics, there is entanglement between R and B. Uh, and this is just, you know, I'm writing the quantum state here. I'm not gonna go through what everything, you know, how everything works here. But uh, it, has, it turns out to have the property that if you were able to actually observe the entanglement between R and B, then you can prove that that would necessarily give you the ability to invert F, to invert the one-way function. Okay, so if you believe that there are, you know, there are reasonable limits of what a quantum computer can do, then actually creating this firewall is exponentially hard, and you know maybe we should worry about it less than you would have thought. Okay, now you know a key assumption behind all of this was that you know we're somehow you know with the, the physics of a black hole somehow get us close to the generic case of this sort of mathematical problem that we're able to prove is hard. The reason why we believe that is that it is thought that black holes are actually extremely efficient scramblers of quantum information. That they, you, know, you take a qubit, you throw it in, and it just sort of gets mixed up with all the other qubits, almost as fast as that could possibly happen. So now Brian is going to explain why we think that scrambling happens. So over to you, Brian.
4: <laughs>
1: actually, Brian, I'm wondering if you could jump over First of all, explain what scrambling is, but then jump to your experiment, because he's actually going to show this in the laboratory. Just a paper came out like three weeks ago yeah. on, this, on this very question. So give us scrambling one-on-one and, and leap over to your experiment.
4: Sure, yeah, so may, maybe to give some background. So I, I didn't start out started studying quantum gravity. I'd like to think that it kind of came looking for me. <laughs> So from the point of view of Daniel's soup can, I started, I started out on the boundary, so I didn't know about the inside. <laughs> I wasn't caring about quantum gravity. I was saying, how do I describe the boundary? And the boundary you can think of as, as any kind of interesting, ordinary quantum mechanical system, some kind of piece of metal or another material or some cloud of atoms that you create in a lab And these kinds of systems, there's no gravity. Gravity doesn't seem to play an important role. We can neglect the fact that Jupiter is moving around when we try to understand, uh, you know, how this metal becomes superconducting or how it becomes a magnet or or these kinds of things. So I, I, I didn't care about gravity. But nevertheless, when you try to understand how to describe the properties of these materials, well then, you find that what you have to do is to understand the way the quantum state of the system behaves. Because somehow the most interesting case, from the point of view of quantum mechanics, is where you cool things down to very low temperature. That's the place where quantum mechanics becomes important. Somehow, for the, you know us, where we're hot, uh, you know we obey the rules of classical physics. You can't tell that we're secretly all waves bouncing around in Hilbert space. But nevertheless, if you cool the system down far enough, then you, then you can then you can you can see effects of quantum mechanics. And so in this sort of quest to understand how to describe the state of some low temperature system of of an ordinary type, rubidium or sodium or anything else that you might think of, we have to understand the properties of the quantum state. And and one of the important properties, which Scott already mentioned, is the property of entanglement. That is some kind of correlation between different parts of the state. And we'd like to understand how entanglement looks like in the quantum state. And, And so in thinking about this question of how entanglement looks like, We're actually led to a picture from sort of the opposite direction, much like the soup can. Where, just like Daniel was talking about, some, if you have sort of small parts of the boundary, well, then that corresponds to things near the outside. If you have a big part of the boundary, that corresponds to something in the inside. And what we can say is that what this correspondence means precisely is that the points near the boundary, the points near the outside of the soup can, correspond to entanglement between nearby things in the boundary. So you have two electrons moving around, they can have some short-range entanglement. And similarly, as you go into the interior, you have additional points, and these points correspond to entanglement between more electrons. Electrons further apart and larger groups of electrons. And so there's a kind of hierarchy of entanglement in your state. And this hierarchy is represented geometrically by some kind of space. And so the idea was that, in some sense, entanglement is what's gluing together the, the interior of the can. Just like Daniel was saying, you have this notion that, that bigger and smaller corresponds to where you are inside the soup can. So what that means is that corresponds in the boundary to how non-local your entanglement is. And so this is, this is sort of how I got into the subject, because I, I was playing with these, these quantum states. I realized that that um, you could think of entanglement in this geometrical way. And so then suddenly, I was doing quantum gravity without even knowing it. Because once you have this emergent space, you start with the boundary of your soup can, but you somehow get the interior once you try to describe it properly, once you try to understand the structure of the quantum state. And so for me, this was very exciting because it opened up the possibility that we could actually do experiments to study some of these crazy things that Daniel and Scott have been talking about. Because we have all kinds of, we have an entire landscape of different materials, different kinds of systems we can artificially engineer in the lab. And so maybe we could test some of these things. And so as, as uh, Scott mentioned, um, one of the very important things um, that you need for all these properties of black holes to be true is that black holes mix up their information very rapidly. So if I drop some piece of information into a black hole, it very quickly, gets scrambled over all the degrees of freedom of the black hole. In fact, it's believed that black holes do this as fast as possible, that nothing in nature can scramble information more rapidly. And to understand what scrambling means, we can actually go back to something in classical physics called the butterfly effect. So this is essentially the idea of chaos. And here the idea is, um, suppose we had, let's say, some, some wind. and. Um, I have this orderly pattern of wind, it's things, things are very nice, the wind's all blowing in the same direction, it doesn't change in time. Now the butterfly effect says that if I, if, I, if I were instead to take this orderly pattern and somewhere down here, a butterfly flaps its wing, well then that flapping of the butterfly wings, provided the way the system works is sufficiently chaotic, has a growing effect in space and time. So you see here, I've rotated the arrows just a little bit, that somehow corresponds to the fact that just after the butterfly has flapped its wings, nothing much has happened. You know, it's just a butterfly. It doesn't change the wind pattern. But as I go later in time, the effect of the butterfly's flapping of its wings increases in space and also increases in magnitude. So you see the arrows are rotated more drastically as you go up. And so now somehow the picture is that in this system chaos means if I start with this orderly pattern and I add this perturbation, if I sort of imagine going backward in time perturbing one of the one of the places, going forward again, then it has a drastic impact on the way the wind velocity looks later in time. So somehow this butterfly flapping its wings has a drastic impact later on the direction of two points of wind. Okay? And so so as was said The idea is that black holes do something like this, and moreover, they do it extremely rapidly and extremely strongly. So here's a a kind of picture in the black hole context. So this picture here is a picture called a Penrose diagram, which describes the space-time of a pair of black holes. So this is one black hole here. This is another black hole here. They meet in the center. And so this is actually what's called a wormhole, or an Einstein-Rosen bridge, which connects the two black holes together. So in principle, there's a spatial connection between one black hole and the other. And actually this illustrates one of the principles I mentioned before, the idea that entanglement can bind space-time together, because here, what the meaning of this wormhole is, is that this set of degrees of freedom here and this set of degrees of freedom here are entangled in some important way. And so the idea, just like our butterfly, was we want to measure the correlation between some degrees of freedom. And the idea of chaos is we we go backwards in time, we apply some small perturbation, and then we run things forward in time again. And we see what happens. And if we can understand how the correlations between these two degrees of freedom are disrupted by this perturbation we did backwards in time, Well then, we can understand something about how the black hole scrambles information because this is like putting one little bit of information into the system and we want to see how big of an effect, how many degrees of freedom that affects at later time. And in fact, if you do this calculation, what you'll find is that black holes, as I said, scramble very rapidly. So here we're not making a conjecture anymore about black holes being generic, we're actually calculating something using the the miracle of ADS-CFT. And what this calculation shows is that the effect of this perturbation becomes very large as you push it backwards in time, and in fact becomes as large as rapidly as possible. And so the idea that we had was, was since in principle the boundary is some ordinary thing, it's just a quantum mechanical system, there's no gravity involved. Maybe we could actually do this kind of experiment. Maybe we could actually measure correlations, measure how they're disrupted, by in effect going backwards in time, applying our perturbation, and running forwards in time again. That may sound kind of crazy, the idea that you can go forward and backward mm-hmm. in time, but actually it's not crazy. In the modern world of sort of designer, quantum engineered systems, where we take our very cold atoms, uh, just barely above absolute zero, we have all kinds of lasers, we can actually do things like this. And so there's an experiment that you could actually do to measure this butterfly effect in these quantum mechanical systems. And the experiment looks something like this. The idea is you wanna measure the difference between first applying or measuring V, going forward in time, applying your perturbation, and then going back. And you wanna measure the interference between that and a different option, where I first do nothing, then I go forward in time, I apply W, then I go back, and then I apply V. So this measures, in a sense, the degree to which doing W in the distant past has an impact on V. If if there's no difference between these two, these two histories, well, then the impact of V on, uh, the impact of W on V is is very small. The butterfly wings don't have a strong effect. But if there's, if these states are very different, that's a signal of chaos. And in fact, this experiment can be done remarkably, going forward in time and going backwards in time, can be done in a variety of so-called quantum optical settings. So this is like where you have photons, particles of light, and various kinds of atoms and ions in some very cold, very isolated, very well controlled setup. And then with various kinds of laser fields, microwave, radiation, and various other tools, you can actually strongly control the way the system evolves in time. So you can, you can in effect, rewind and fast forward the tape all you want. And so one can actually measure this kind of interference and thus, we can finally, we can actually ask a question, you know, how does chaos develop in these quantum mechanical systems? And in particular, if we actually had a black hole, we know how the black hole develops, and how, how, the, how the chaos in a black hole develops. And so we could ask the question, you know, are there any ordinary systems that, that have chaos like the black hole has chaos? Because then, if we had such a system, maybe we would have in our lab, effectively, via this soup-can duality, we would actually have a black hole we could play with, a quantum black hole. So, you know, we would love to study quantum gravity experimentally. One of the great ways to do that is to look in the sky. That's, let's study gravity in our own universe. But, but there's lots of fundamental mysteries about quantum gravity that, that maybe don't depend too much on what kind of space-time you live in. And so, so the very exciting possibility is that we could actually, mm-hmm. we could actually learn about black holes in a tabletop experiment sometime soon.
1: So that's uh, that's what I wanted to say. Great, great, thank you. Mm-hmm. So before we go to Q&A, we've got about five more minutes of discussion and I wanted to touch on some of the ways that this work is having practical benefit for our understanding of quantum computers and so forth. And, and Daniel, maybe I'll go back to you on this. One thing you had mentioned to me earlier uh, was that you can actually, you can use quantum, Error correction codes to understand quantum gravity, but maybe you can run it the other way, You use quantum gravity to make up new error correction codes. Can you elaborate?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, right. So, I mean, indeed. So, so, so usually when, uh, so usually when a person who studies quantum computing uh, is trying to, you know, you know, they have their own set of techniques for thinking about error correcting codes. Uh, and, you know, unsurprisingly, um, they They try and find simple error correcting codes, right you know because the, you know they want to have you know something which runs on their computer in some straightforward way you know uh, it's not too you know often it's based on previously existing classical codes mm-hmm. you know of, you know of the kind that you know the bank or the military or whoever is using um, so but the nice thing about quantum gravity is that um it's giving us the codes, we, we just have to accept the codes that it gives to us, right? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a way of Jenning writing a code where it's not like you sit down and you say, I'm gonna generate a code. You know, you, you sit down and you say, I'm gonna try and find a theory of quantum gravity and then a code comes out of it. And then unsurprisingly, the, there'll be codes which don't necessarily have, they have, they have different properties than the codes which, which coding people have already come up with. Uh, and, and, and for some things, they're more efficient. Uh, you know, r- r- roughly for the same reasons that Brian was suggesting about how you know black holes are sort of the fastest scramblers, they're also sort of the best uh, encoders, if you like. Um, uh, and, and actually, there's there has even already been um, some pro- progress along these lines. I mean, people have invented actual codes that you know you could put on a quantum computer, uh, which were designed uh, by saying, oh, let's see if we can come up with a with a model of holography. You know, this ADS. <laughs> CFT, but, you know, which is simple enough that we could explain it to a computer scientist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, yeah. I, lo- I love you, too. I love you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know. I think it's exciting. Probably there will be, be more things along these lines in the future. Yeah. So uh, just to close out
1: our discussion, you had actually told me a little anecdote about a conference you re- recently were at. and a, uh, Can you really count that to the audience and then we can take the questions? <laughs>
2: Well yeah okay so yeah. So, so, I, so I I was actually just in Kyoto for a month. Uh great great place by the way you should all go. Um but uh you know it, it was uh, well, the, and, and it was about this set of ideas, you know, and there were people from all over the world there, you know. It's, it's always nice going to these conferences because I have all these friends who live everywhere, you know, in India, Korea, you know, I, and I see them every six months, right? Uh, um, and at this particular conference, we were having a, a banquet, as we usually have in a conference. Uh, and, and usually it's, it's a tradition that you ask a senior, you know, a distinguished scientist to speak uh, at the banquet. Uh, And, and, you know, usually this consists of just sort of telling lame jokes about the organizers. And, you know, I mean, usually the speeches are not the most uh, (laughs) illuminating things in the world. I think my colleagues will agree. Uh, But uh, in this particular case, the speaker um, was John Carty, who is a great, uh, really one of the great uh, theoretical physicists of our time. He's British, um, he's worked on many things. uh, um, And he was saying, you know, what he said, which, you know, to me really was, you know, it, it meant something. You know, he said, you know, you young people have no idea uh, what, you're, what, you're, what you're a part of here, you know. you know, th- he, he said he thinks that this is in some sense a golden age of theoretical physics, right, where all of these different disciplines, which in the 20th century were, you know, in different departments or even if they were in the same department, they never talked to each other, you know are all now talking to each other, you know, and new things are coming out of it and information is flowing in, in every which direction. Uh, and you know, I mean like for me, right, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm just some pipsqueak, right, so you know, I'm just having fun, right? But you know, he, you know what he said like from his, from his perspective, right, I mean, it's really an unprecedented thing, you know, he thinks it's the most exciting thing he's seen in his career, you know, which has, you know, lasted for quite a while. Uh, You know, and so, I mean, yeah, to me that was inspiring, I don't
1: know. Uh, It is, to see this conjunction of these two disciplines that had been in separate floors of the department before talking. And then there were questions from the audience.
0: First, someone asked about a theory that information is actually the basic building block of the universe. What does the panel think about that idea?
3: You want me to?
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, so, so the way I think of it is that, well, you know, of course information is at the bottom of this level. And I, I say that not merely because I'm a computer scientist and that would you know, make me happy, but, but, but because you know, information just means you, know, you have something, a system that could be in several different states. Right? And then you find out which state it's in and then you learn something. Right? That's information. Right? Now, here's my question for you. How could the universe possibly have been so that you wouldn't describe it in terms of information? <laughs> so that it wouldn't have different states that it could be in, and that it turns out to be in one of them, right? It's like, you know, uh, uh, um, you know like matter and energy, you know, that we could easily imagine a universe with no matter and no energy, which would still be interesting, okay? Uh, if any of you have seen cellular automata, like Conway's Game of Life, Right, that's an example, right? Uh, um, You know, matter and energy are just specific features of the laws of physics that we happen to find around us. But information seems to me like math. It seems to me like at a lower, you know, a more basic level than that, it's something that would apply to sort of not just our universe, but to any universe. So to me, the interesting questions are really, you know, when you, when you try to go beyond that and you try to ask, well, how exactly, you know, you know if, if you chose to think of our universe as a computational process, which, yes, you can do, you know, of course you can do, right, then what kind of computational process is it? So for example, you know, how many operations could it do per second? Uh, how many bits can it store, you know? What can it do with those bits? What problems can, it, can we solve using the laws of physics? What problems can we still not solve? Uh, you know, those are all interesting questions, and those are questions where I think quantum mechanics, and you know, for the first two questions I mentioned, actually quantum gravity, have told us an enormous amount. Um, so, so, so that, that's really where I, you know, and that's part of the reason why I think physicists have been using the language of information more and more. Because, you know, partly because quantum gravity almost forces that language on you. You know, partly because of the impact of things like quantum computation.
2: Well maybe, I, yeah, let me just briefly yeah. add to that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right, you know, my, my computer science colleague here writes so that, this kind of thing is almost obvious to him, but to, to a physicist, Uh, As a physicist, we're almost hardwired to identify the information with the stuff that's carrying the information, right? Like when we, so we don't talk about qubits, we talk about spins, you know? And when we, we we, we think of, you know, and and then, you know, the spins in the hard drive in your iPhone or whatever are different, you know, then uh, I don't know uh, whether I write down ones and zeros on a piece of paper, because obviously those are totally different things. One is a piece of paper and one is a spin in a, in a, in a piece of metal. Those are described by totally different physics, right? So, so the thing which we have been learning from the computer scientists is that sometimes it's convenient to forget. <laughs> uh, that, that that different, you know, the information is encoded physically in different way in different systems, uh, and just to think about the information. I mean, at least for us, that's been the, the lesson we've been learning f- from that.
0: Next, someone asked for a clarification about something Dr. Swingle said about the backward processes of cold atoms. Could he elaborate more on that idea? And also, would this backward-in-time process be possible with something called Josephson junctions? which are a way of connecting superconductors.
4: Okay, great question. Um, uh, let me answer the first the second part first. I, with superconductors, I think certainly you could do something like this. with, with properly arranged setup there you could construct interactions that you mm-hmm. could reverse.
3: Uh, uh, one thing I just wanted to clarify, uh, just to, uh, 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 you know as far as I uh, understand or you know, Brian is not, Planning, proposing to build either a uh, time machine or a black hole, <laughs> literally in the lab. <laughs> we, you know the way that I, the way that I would describe the very interesting thing that they're proposing is that they are proposing to do a quantum computation. They're proposing to you know use uh, these physical systems like you know the uh, quantum dots or the or the super, you know superconducting qubits or whatever it is to simulate a process where you simulate what would happen if you could run time back. Backwards, mm-hmm. or you know, you know, uh, and and uh, you know, and, and possibly do it more efficiently than we can do it with existing classical computers, which is you know a perfect example of the kinds of things we're interested in in quantum computing. You know, how can we uh, do something with a quantum computer that is useful in the sense that you know we, we would have a hard time doing the same thing with a classical computer? This is actually one of the best examples I've heard of, uh, you know, how like with. Conceivably, technology of the you know relatively near future, we could do something that's useful. You know, where 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 you know there's an asterisk on you on the word useful here. I mean, you know, useful for quantum gravity theorists, but but still, uh, you know, I think it's a great. Well, example. You know, in, yeah. indeed.
4: I mean, like, is there yeah. another definition? Schrodinger's useful? cat was mentioned. Schrodinger's cat was mentioned. You know, in the in the title and these the superposition that we have in mind, the interference between these two states are like two different cat being dead or cat being alive because chaos, the thing about chaos is it amplifies mm-hmm. everything. So you make a small change and it gets amplified just in the way you, when you see a photon hit a photodetector, it causes some cascade of release of electrons that, that make a, makes a macroscopic signal. So we're really imagining superposing two different sort of macroscopically distinct or at least fairly macroscopically distinct situations mm-hmm. and trying to measure the interference between them. So that really would be some very dramatic quantum mechanical effect that as far as we know, is extremely difficult to simulate or calculate using the computational resources that we currently have at present. Great. But yeah, just, just to also say about you know, the, the time reversal, I mean, it's sort of, it's really very much an art form at this point. I mean, it, you have to pick the right system and find the right mechanism. But, but to give a simple <laughs> example, we had two particles that, that had some interaction, so there's a force between them, and they, they let's say they attract, so they come together. So you can imagine if they're coming together like this, in time they're mo- moving together. This is forward in time with, repul- with attractive interaction. If I could somehow change the interaction to be repulsive, then they would move apart. And that looks like ri- rewinding the, f- the re- attractive thing, it looks like it rewinding it backwards in time. So if I could effectively switch the sign of the interaction, if I could make the interaction repulsive instead of attractive or vice versa, then this is part of the procedure which allows you to effectively go backward in time. Mm. And this can be done, um, you know, atoms have internal states. By applying magnetic field, you can use something called a Feschbach resonance to actually change whether two atoms are attractive or repulsive. So this is something that you could actually do in the lab where you, you'd have some, attractively, some attractive atoms, you apply a magnetic field of just the right size, and suddenly they become effectively repulsive. And so then in, in effect, they are going backwards in time now under that different kind of dynamics.
0: Next, someone asked about computing and the fact that while computers are digital, breaking things down into ones and zeros, or ones, zeros, and other in the case of a quantum computer, the brain is not. It sees and understands analog things like lines and colors without having to convert them into digital information. What does this mean for the future of computing and our understanding of how to process information?
2: So let me let me comment on that because um, so you know we didn't say much about what this boundary theory actually is, um, but but it's actually analog. Uh, so so the boundary theory it's called a conformal field theory and the degrees of freedom are continuous variables. Uh, you know the the where they are in space is a continuous variable. Um, so so you could say why why are we always talking about Talking about it in, in terms of discrete things, and in fact, in fact, that is a sort of good, sort of impertinent question to ask some of the people who are always talking about this. And it, and it's true that we don't understand the details of how to, how to relate our intuition from the discrete description into the continuous one. But I should also say that it seems like that's just mostly a technical problem, because. Um, because, you know, I mean, what, you know, the computer scientists would say is, you know, you can simulate an analog computer on a digital computer and you can simulate a digital computer mm-hmm. on an analog computer. And, you know, maybe just at the cost of some overhead of doing the simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 so and, and, that, and that seems to be the case here. So at least in principle, we know algorithms to simulate the boundary theory on a discrete quantum mm-hmm. computer, you know, and, and we like discrete things because mm-hmm. they're easier to build. Um, mm-hmm. But 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 it seems to just be a practical question. So, question
3: so. I mean I mean I could say that people have speculated for a long time about you know uh, first of all could the brain be fundamentally analog you know in some in some deep way right and and could you know could an analog computer do things that a digital computer could never do even in principle like you know solve the halting problem or you know do these things that are uh, impossible for uh, uh, computers that are built uh, you know. Uh, 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 along the, you know, the uh, lines laid down by Alan Turing, right? um, um, No, so, um, uh, you know, the, uh, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, an analog device seems able to sort of uh, uh, store an infinite number of bits, right? Because if I needed to know the position of a, you know, particle, right? Well, maybe it's just you know pi inches to the right, or you know e inches to the left, or something, right? I would need to know infinitely many bits, but then on the other hand, when I try to make a measurement of it, I never actually get those infinitely many bits, right? I need to round off anyway because of error in my system, right? And I think you know the discussion sort of you know uh, didn't advance that far beyond that for for a long time, but I think that actually quantum gravity contributed a crucial new insight to this whole discussion. This is actually before the developments that, that you know that uh, Daniel Bryan and I have been talking about and maybe even more basic than them right. This comes from the work of Jacob Beckenstein. you know mostly in the 1970s and what he said is that um, you know there are very, very general reasons why you should expect that the number of bits that you could store—you know, the number of qubits, let's say, of quantum bits that you could store in any given region of of space-time—you know—is going to be at most uh, 10 to the 69 bits per square meter of surface area of that region. <laughs> roughly, right, which is a lot of bits. Let's be clear about that, but it's a (laughs) finite number, right? It's, uh, uh, you know, and, and the basic reason for that is that you can do a thought experiment about what would happen if you tried to build a denser hard drive than that. If you tried to pack more bits than Bekenstein's limit, and the answer is, what would happen is your hard drive would collapse to a black hole, okay? (laughs) Which I like as nature's way of telling you not to do something, you know? And from then on, the number of bits would just be given by the area of the black holes event horizon in in Planck areas, okay? And um, so, you know, so black holes are, are actually, you know, they were once thought to be hairless, you know, to be these totally featureless objects. Actually, in quantum gravity, they are the hairiest objects in the universe. Okay, or in other words, the <laughs> densest hard drives allowed by the laws of physics. You know, they're terrible for retrieval, okay? But you know, but for storage density, nothing beats a black hole. Right? And so now, but then this Bekenstein limit, you could apply it to the brain, for example. You know, just you know, find the what's the surface area of a sphere enclosing your head, right? And you'll get some answer, you know, on the order of you know, 10 to the 68, 10 to the 69. 9 cubits, which would then, if you believe in, you know, Beckenstein's uh, arguments from quantum gravity, that would give an upper bound on the number of qubits needed to describe what is going on in your brain if you go, if you went all the way down to the quantum gravitational level. So that would give a sense in which the brain sort of, you know, or any other, any physical system sort of would have to be discrete at the level of you know a the result of any measurement that you could actually make on it it would still be continuous at the level of the quantum mechanical amplitudes right quantum mechanics has this sort of this sort of continuity that's baked in to just you know what a qubit even is in the first place but that i think of as a very very benign kind of continuity because that's the kind which is not subject to the butterfly effect that brian talked about Okay, a small error in you know quantum mechanical amplitudes is not going to blow up in time and become a larger error, and the reason for that is basically that the Schrödinger equation, which is the defining equation of quantum mechanics, is a linear differential equation that sort of preserves uh, angles between vectors, so it doesn't blow up small errors. So you know, so so if you believe Bekenstein, then there is at most this benign kind of continuity in the brain, and not the the sort of worrying kind.
0: Next, someone asked, would quantum computing be useful to a robot, especially in terms of how they might be able to socialize?
3: Well, uh, in, you know, I mean, I mean, if, if, if you were in a social setting where you needed to calculate the ground state of a molecule, uh, you know, well, that's right. This would be this would be this would be an awesome yeah. robot for that kind of party. Uh, I mean, the more the more the more serious answer to your question is that the you know the, the applications of quantum computing that we're confident about, you know, are are you know I think they're astounding. That it has any applications at all, right? <laughs> that it can do anything that's sort of faster than than you know these silicon chips that you know we've sort of uh, you know are one of the most amazing products of you know human ingenuity ever, right? Mm-hmm. That you can actually beat them at something, right? <laughs> is is astounding, okay? But the things that we know, you know, where we're confident that you could beat existing computers are are fairly specialized. Uh, you know, they're a quantum simulation you know, which is the kind of thing we've been talking about, which has, you know, you know, know, which I actually think is maybe the most important application, right? Because, you know, that's useful not only for quantum gravity, but for, uh, you know, designing high temperature superconductors, possibly designing, you know, higher efficiency solar cells, designing pharmaceuticals, you know, any uh, nanotechnology, you know, anything where you need to sort of get the quantum behavior right, you know, a general quantum simulator might help you With with that, And the other thing is breaking uh, almost all the cryptography that we use on the internet, which, you know, is uh, not necessarily a positive application for humanity, but could be a positive application for whichever intelligence agency uh, can do it, okay? So those are the two big applications that we know about. And then there are others that we're sort of, that we're not as confident about, right? So, uh, you know, quantum computers might be able to help you for optimization problems. You know, if you've heard of NP complete problems, they could help you, you know, like the traveling salesman problem or whatever. They might help somewhat for for those. You know, or machine learning tasks like uh, clustering, you know, classification. Again, they might be able to help you somewhat. Uh, But those are less clear cut cases because, you know, often we have a quantum algorithm, we know that you could run it, but we don't really know, we don't have a provable performance guarantee. We might have to just build the quantum algorithm quantum computer and try it out before we really know what these algorithms do. Or even in the cases where we do know what the algorithms do, often we're not very confident that there couldn't be a classical algorithm that would do just as well or nearly as well, right? Which is like the other thing that makes this field so hard, right, that it's not enough for us to do something. You know, we have to establish that the classical people would not have been able to do it, right? Which is, you know, a large part of my interest. Also, I'm interested in impossibility theorems. You know, they're more, you know, uh, you know, when, when something is pos, you know, when something is possible, that's just a proof that it's impossible to get an impossibility theorem. Okay.
0: <laughs> and to follow up, what about modeling social processes or brain processes? Could quantum computing help?
3: Well, you know, I think the, the, for, for brain processes, the answer to that depends on whether you think that quantum mechanical effects are actually relevant to what the brain is doing, right? If you think so, like if you thought that it was important to precisely model the you know biochemistry of every neuron, you know, in order to simulate a brain all the way down to the quantum level, then absolutely a quantum computer could help you with that. On the other hand, if you believed what I think Is the more common view in neuroscience, which would say you only have to look at sort of a higher level of abstraction, you know, you can sort of, you know, uh, treat the neurons as, you know, more, a little bit more like, you know, classical, you know, logic elements of some kind, then it's not at all clear that a quantum computer would be helping you much uh, to simulate that. Uh so so I think that it's you know it's not it's you know the answer is not obvious but part of it just depends on you know on on on, on how fine grained you want your simulation to be.
0: Next, when you say three qubits coming out of a black hole, what does that actually mean? What physically is happening?
2: The polarization of a photon, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so of course, in, in any physical system, the information is carried by physical things. So for black holes, we think that most of the information um, will come out in photons. Some of it will come out in gravitons. Uh, and, and those have both continuous and discrete degrees of freedom because, you know, they're sort of, the, say, the direction it's pointing and then the... Uh, the the polarization. Coming
3: out. Right. What he's trying yeah. to say is yeah. just that there's a bunch of qubits coming out.
2: <laughs> That's a computer scientist. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and finally, a simple question: What did this conversation have to do with its title? Did any of this tell us if Einstein killed Schrodinger's cat? Well, we didn't
1: pick yeah, the title. Just, well, we, uh, <laughs> it was my responsibility either. Well, <laughs> I
2: mean, I, I think the idea was just that uh, the idea is just that there is this tension. Between quantum mechanics and gravity, which has been around for you know a long time, you know, 80 years at least, people have been trying to quantize gravity. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I guess probably, yeah, probably, yeah. I guess we were joking this morning that or I guess this afternoon I that maybe it would be better to say, did, did Schrodinger's cat kill Einstein? That seems to be more the direction things are things are, are going. Um, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I think it's just, you know, how, how how in the end, I mean, it's embarrassing, right? You know, I mean, the, you know, the other forces of nature, we've, were combined with quantum mechanics at the latest in the early 70s. Uh, and gravity has just been hanging around, you know, confusing us uh, since then. And, you know, I, I hope we've conveyed that we've learned some things about it, you know, it's not, you know, I, I guess, right, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not things like, you know, the problem of consciousness or the meaning of time where, you know, it, we don't even know what it means to make pro- progress on those things. I mean, you know, quantum gravity is a thing that's well enough defined; we can, in principle, make, make progress on it and do um, make, make progress on it. Um, but, you know, still, we don't actually know in the end, you know, if we try to describe, you know, okay, say I fall, say, say I fall into a black hole uh, 10 seconds after I cross the horizon, um, you know, what's the probability that I see an elephant? I mean, that's, that's a, that, if someone comes to you, uh, you know, like I get in my inbox sometimes telling you they have a theory of quantum gravity. Uh, this is a question you should ask them, right? You know, because this is an experiment we can do. Mm-hmm. And so any, any self-respecting person with the theory of quantum gravity has to be able to answer that mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And we can't right. yet. We, we right. don't know, like, what the formula is to mm-hmm. compute that probability. And, in fact, we don't even, even know if it, if, if it makes sense, that it's a probability, right? Like, you know, probabilities are real numbers, right? Which we measure by repeating experiments many times, but behind a black mm-hmm. hole, you can only repeat the experiment a finite number of times anyway. So does it have a right to have a probability? I mean, if it doesn't, mm-hmm. then, well then clearly that's modifying <laughs> quantum mechanics because mm-hmm. quantum mechanics is about probabilities, right? So I mean, you know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. we, we still, there still is this, this basic tension uh, between gravity and quantum mechanics that we, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully it will keep us employed uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, at, least, well, I think, at least for a while longer. I can just add one thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I
4: slightly disagree that it's embarrassing we haven't solved the problem for the simple mm-hmm. reason that we don't have any experiments that, that measure some combination of quantum properties and gravitational properties. And this has always been crucial in making progress mm-hmm. in physics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, a very exciting you know, part mm-hmm. of the recent story is that maybe in some sense, we will soon have some experiments mm-hmm. that we can try to mm-hmm. learn either cosmologically or perhaps in these quantum simulations of the behavior of the black holes. Mm -hmm. And I think that will really help both in telling us what kind of questions to ask, what are the right questions, and also in giving us non-trivial answers to those questions that we can then try to understand Mm -hmm. using our theory. Mm
0: -hmm. And we'll end there. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, who wrote the introduction with Dr. Luisa Bocacheva, production assistance by Kerry Kasten, administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Jennifer Costley. Special thanks to the speakers, George Musser of Scientific American Magazine, Dr. Daniel Harlow of Harvard University, Dr. Scott Aronson of MIT, and Dr. Brian Swingle of Stanford University. Find out more about the Physics of Everything series at www.nyas.org physics of everything. Both this podcast and the event it presented were made possible with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.